Well, good morning. A couple weeks ago, Frank, uh, here at our Mount Juliet campus, uh, introduced a table. He had a table set up right here, and he spoke to how it was a main method to Jesus' ministry. Uh, during that week, we looked at the tendency that we have to add things onto the gospel uh, like unnecessary religious practices. The problem with that, with adding things onto the gospel, is that it actually, in fact, changes the gospel when we add things onto it. It changes the message uh, that Christ is enough of his sufficiency. So that was a couple weeks ago. And then last week here, Justin examined the ways that our lives change as we spend time with Christ. Uh, if we'll just trust his goodness, his sufficiency, that he is enough over and above everything that we have and do. Uh, so in that message, we looked at some root idols, if you remember that, uh, that come from fear and compete with Christ, uh, his place over our hearts. We talked about approval, right? That idol of approval, this, this longing to be liked. We talked about power, this longing for influence, control, longing for things to go my way, and comfort, which is this longing for pleasure. So these idols constantly tempt us to go back to our old ways, whether legalistically or in our flesh. I mean, even the Israelites, right, they wanted to go back into slavery. They even thought that life in slavery was better than being free in, uh, in, in the desert. So our tendency to go back uh, is always rooted in fear, but praise God, as it says in Psalm 34, that he delivers us from all Fear. So those were the last two weeks, and, and this morning is actually going to be the end of our series in Colossians. So if you missed those weeks or any of the other ones, you can listen to those or watch those on our app, uh, on, on our website, or, or on our podcast. Uh, but today, as we wrap up our entire Colossians series, let's actually turn to Colossians 3, and we'll read the end of Colossians 3, and then we'll get into Colossians 4, the first verses of Colossians 4. All right, so in Colossians 3, verse 17, we see this. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I'll read that one more time. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All right, whatever you do. In whatever we do, let us do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, right? Whatever, whether, whether it's working, parenting, loving, exercising, weeding, traveling, sleeping, singing. I mean, in whatever, in absolute every aspect of our life, we read here that we are to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And as we do whatever we do, that we are to give thanks to God in and through it all. In other words, in whatever we do, in wherever we go, in all instances, what would it look like if we were to go and worship him in and through it all, where we are to worship God in all things? Now, in today's passage, uh, in the following verses, we'll see that our first place of ministry is our homes. It's from there that actually everything expands outwards. I mean, consider Acts 1.8. Have you ever wondered why Jesus said in his last words to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in, what does he say? In Jerusalem, right? Closest. And then in 
Judea, a little bit farther out, and then in Samaria, a little bit further out, and then to the ends of the earth. Have you ever wondered why Jesus, in his last words, had that kind of order? I mean, why did he start with Jerusalem? Could it be that perhaps he wanted us to understand that ministry always, ministry to others always has to start with those closest to us? How many of you have heard it said that we should consider going across the street before we go across the globe? How many of you have heard of something like that? Well, maybe in that vein, maybe it should actually be said that before we even consider going across the street, we should start at our own kitchen table. And in order, even before that, to have something to say at our kitchen table, uh, perhaps we need to answer this fundamental question, which is our first point. Who is leading you? Right? So before we even go across the world, across the street, or across our kitchen table, what would it look like if we were to ask this first question to ourselves? Who is leading you? Who is leading me? Right? Who is leading us? Is it the root idols from last week? Remember, do you have a longing to be liked? Right? Is that what is leading you? This desire for approval? Maybe it's a longing for influence. Is that what is causing you to make the decisions that you are making uh, in terms of what you do for work or, or where you're going to go on the weekends or, or the things that you prioritize or the way that you spend money? Who is leading you? Is it a longing for things to go your way? Is it maybe this root idol of control? Or maybe it's a longing for pleasure, for comfort. Who is leading you? Is it one of these idols or is it Christ? Are you seeking the approval of man? Or are you resting in God's approval of you through the finished work of Christ? Here's another way of putting it. Are you sitting at the feet of others or are you sitting at the feet of of Christ. Let's read uh, chapter 3, verse 17, and then we'll go to 22 to 24. We'll touch back on verse 18 to 21 a little bit later. But let's start at 17, and then we'll go to verse 22. And whatever you do in word or in deed, right, we're saying this again, do everything in the, in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 22, slaves obey your human, human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. How many of you are people pleasers as it says here in verse 22? Have you ever worked a little harder? Let me, here's a question. Have you ever worked a little harder uh, when you saw your boss walking by your desk or you knew that your teacher was right there looking over your shoulder when you knew your parents were watching you when you were supposed to clean up, <laughs> right? Or maybe you do that to your kids or to others if you manage others. I mean, how many of us tend to just work a little bit harder or focus a little bit more. And then we relax when whoever our boss or supervisor, whoever is, whoever we're answering to is gone. 
Here in this passage, Paul is helping us understand that ultimately, even though we may be working for a human institution or a company or, or yourself, if you're an entrepreneur, we're ultimately called to do everything onto the Lord, right? So when you work with excellence, right, regardless of who is watching you, what we are reading here in this passage is that actually that excellence in which we are working with and through is actually onto the Lord, and when we do that, we are actually working as an active testimony and living as an active testimony to our coworkers and our boss. I mean, think about this. How, what kind of testimony would we be to the world as followers of Christ if people didn't want to hire Christians? Like broadly. Like what kind of testimony would we be if, if people associated Christians with slackers? Right? Shouldn't it be the opposite? Shouldn't it be that employers would be lining up at the door seeking to hire Christians to fill any and every position because they know that Christians would be, give, that they would give 110%? I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if there were employers here in Mount Juliet and they would reach out to Len, our campus pastor, and say, hey, Len, who here among all your students or who here among your entire congregation can you recommend? I mean, what would it look like if even informal recommendations, employers were like, hey, if you're a part of a church, we want to hear a recommendation from your pastor. I mean, just imagine what that would look like. And the reason they would ask, because the world, they, they might not know what Colossians 3 says, right? They might not know who Jesus is, but when they see Christians, they see individuals who are working wholeheartedly, living, breathing, and working and eating onto the Lord and not to others. That they're not working to please someone else, because when you work to please someone else, can you ever truly please them? No. And if you're working to please yourself and not someone else, can you ever truly live up to even your own standards or even to any of these other idols that we read about? No, we can't. So when you look at verse 23 and 24, right, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of, of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. In other words, when we read this, we are called to whether it's, you know, it, it be in work, in family, or friendships, we are called to have a posture in which we are serving and being available to others, ultimately because we're doing everything onto the Lord. In fact, one thing that I do... Um, I mean, I, I hate disruptions. And recently at Lifeway, we moved from, uh, I, I don't know if you guys saw the implosion about, uh, you know, half a year ago, or uh, I think it was like January, right? This big implosion of the Lifeway buildings coming down. And there are some people on social media who are like, oh, it's so sad that, you know, this, this, this organization has, you know, closed down and shut down. And, you know, it's so sad that they would do all this. And, and I'm like, no, we're, we actually moved to a new building. <laughs> uh, and actually, it's like, it's way better in, in space a lot smaller because uh, we don't need all the space, but we, we moved to this new building, right? And it's funny because when we moved to the new building uh, and, uh, you know, we, we kind of we shut that down, we moved from having offices to mostly everyone being in cubicles. 
And now that we're all in cubicles, it's all kind of, you know, it's the new thing, you know, everyone's kind of open office. And it's, it sounds cool, but I mean, it's when someone else is like listening to the radio or, you know, they're talking, it's just really disruptive. And I, when I work, like I focus, right? And I don't want people to talk to me. You know, I'll put my earphones in and I just want to concentrate because I just hate all the chit chatter. Now, you know, so, so people could interpret my work behavior as being isolated or that I don't care about other people or that I don't love my coworkers, right? I mean, that, that could be the perception when everyone's talking and I'm like, shh, okay, I don't say shh. I think shh, because I know it's pretty rude to say that. Uh, but I've learned, you know, in the Southern way to be a little passive aggressive uh, when someone's like radio's playing and I'm like, hey, do you hear radio? Someone, is, is someone's radio going on? <laughs> so I know that's probably not the right thing to do, but you know, I kind of learn. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so if that's my attitude toward work, in light of this passage, what I've learned to do, right, what I've learned to do is actually um, have time where I would actually work time into my schedule to be interrupted. I would actually work time in my schedule to, even though I would every day rather eat at my desk or have a meeting, a lunch meeting, rather than just eating with my coworkers and not having anything in particular to talk about. Because I would rather, no, I know, I know it kind of sounds funny, but I'm like, if I'm having lunch, let's have a meeting or let's do, bit, you know, I don't want to do chit chat, let's just get right to it. Uh, but I've had, I've learned, I've learned that actually I need to create moments and opportunities and space for the Lord to work because he may want to work in and through me in the life of someone else in not a formal way. Do you know what I'm talking about? So when I had a closed office, I would keep my door open even though all I wanted to do was shut it, right? During lunch, when I legitimately have no meeting, I'll seek after and look for anyone else around me who is not who, who, who is at their desk, and I'm like, hey, do you want to eat lunch together? If I go down to the cafeteria, I'll actually look for people that I know. I'm not, you know, kind of extroverted enough to go to people I don't know and be like, you want to eat lunch together? Because I think that's kind of weird. Uh, but, you know, even though we're the same company, but, uh, but I'll actually go and look for people that I know that are sitting by themselves, and I'm like, hey, can I eat with you? Right? And I look for those opportunities because as, we'll, as I'll remind you again at the end of our message, what would it look like if we were to begin every day with this posture of blessing, of beginning with prayer and of saying, Lord, here I am. I have my plans. The last thing that I do before I go to bed and one of the first things that I do when I wake up is I'm like, what do I have to do this next day? And I give it to the Lord and I actually pray through every appointment and every meeting and everything. I'm like, Lord, what are you calling me to do? You know, I have this plan. May I do it with excellence, but help me be attentive to if you are wanting to interrupt my plan. Right? What would it look like if even as we see here in this passage, right? Whatever you do, verse 23, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ so that whether it be through work or through others or through interactions with others, what would it look like if in every instance, even in mowing the lawn or talking to our neighbors, that we are actually doing it onto the Lord? Now, 
Let's go to verse 18. Uh, and let's actually read. So we skipped 18 to 21. So let's actually go back and read Colossians 3, 18 to 21. And then we'll move on to our second point. All right. So Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Now, husbands, before you nudge your wives and point and highlight this in their Bibles, right? Wives, before you then look at your husbands, <laughs> and you just, all you gotta do is give them the look, right? You don't have to say anything. Uh, and children, I wish our, our teenagers, you know, I know we have teenagers here, but I wish the, the rest of our student ministry heroes as well, because they'd probably be like looking back at their parents and be like, dad, don't exasperate me, right? Uh, and, and, and parents, right, before you look at your children and um, before we use this onto each other, right, let's actually ask this question, right? Who is leading our family? Right when before we kind of go through and look at what each of these verses mean and the context for it, uh, the broader question that we need to ask ourselves is who is leading your family? Right, that first point was who is leading you, but this next question that we need to ask ourselves is who is leading your family? Paul did not write these verses as ammunition for us to use against each other. He didn't intend for you to print these out and place them in the bathroom so that people would see it, you wouldn't have to, you know, that's passive aggressive, right? I mean, that's total. It's one thing if you print out a verse for you, but when you print it out for someone else and put it in, put it in front of their vanity, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that is not why Paul wrote these verses. He wrote these verses instead for you to examine your own heart, right? For you to examine your own heart Right? Jesus said, hey, before you take that speck out of someone else's eye, take the log out of yours. And he wrote this for you to examine your own heart, your own motivations, and who is, what is underneath the surface as it relates to your family. So who is leading your family? Are you leading your family? Is it your heavy hand? Is it your iron fist? Or I love this phrase, is it the gentleness of Jesus? There's this preacher, Charles Spurgeon, this great uh, Baptist preacher in, in London, and, um, and I love what he said here about the gentleness of Jesus. So let me, let me read from a sermon that he wrote. Our king came among us in meek and lowly guise, and so he continued among us. You shall not find Christ pushing his way among the politicians, crying, I claim leadership among the sons of men. He never marches at the head of an admiring mob to assert his supremacy by their aid and alarm his foes by terror of their numbers. But gently gliding through the world, seen by his light rather than heard by his sound, Jesus was content to shun fame and avoid applause. I love that. But gently gliding through the world, seen by his light rather than heard by his sound. Seen by his light rather than heard by his sound. That's amazing. He was content to shun fame and avoid applause. He frequently forbade the grateful patients whom he had healed to mention his name or publish the cure. His modesty and love of quiet shrank from notoriety 
It was abundantly true of him. He did not strive nor cry, and neither did any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he did not break, and smoking flax he did not quench. Friends, your first ministry and proving ground is your home. And by home, I'm talking about, yes, your blood family, but also our church family. These passages are not ammunition, nor are they something to lord over someone else into submission. These passages are actually about us choosing to actively submit ourselves to one another. There's a big difference between forced submission and willing submission. Uh, How many of you have a dog here? I'm just curious. Okay. So uh, Christina and I, we have a dog. His name is Teddy. He's probably coming up to, is it nine years? Is he nine? Is he 10? 10? Okay. So Christina's giving me a head nod. 10 years, right? And we bought him when we lived in Montreal. So he's like, he's moved with us uh, like to Korea, back to Canada, and here, like, and he's he's going strong. He only has like eight teeth left, because uh, because <laughs> we do not feed your dogs peanut butter, <laughs> especially young dogs, and and fail to brush their teeth because there's a lot of sugar in peanut butter, which I you know failed to notice. Anyway, so when we got Teddy. Uh, we asked, and we, we had kind of owned dogs in the past, but we never owned our own dog. It was kind of family dogs. And we asked our, our, the breeder, hey, what should we do? Like, how do we, how do we you know, make, make sure that he pees outside or does whatever we need him to do? And I didn't hear about, what, what is his name, Caesar, like the dog whisperer? Or, I mean, I don't even know if he had a show back then. Um, but our, our breeder basically said, okay, two things. All right, two things. Um, and I'll just tell you guys the first thing, uh, because the other thing doesn't really matter. But the, the first thing he said, okay, it's about, the second one is about how to make sure that they pee where they're supposed to pee, but that has nothing to do with the sermon. So if you're interested in that, let's not waste time here. I'll tell you after, but I'll tell you the first part that actually has something to do with the sermon. It's about uh, the whole idea of the alpha dog, right? This, this idea. And, and she was like, this is what you got to do. Uh, if you want to make sure that Teddy listens to you, you need to be the boss. And the only way that you're going to be the boss is if you show them, show them who's boss. And this is how you show them who's boss. You grab their neck and you push their neck to the ground. Right? I mean, you're not going to break his neck, right? It's like, it's not, you know, it's not as bad as you think. But you, you kind of push your neck to the ground so that their head is on the ground. And what's going to happen the first time you do it is that their bum's going to be up. So they're going to be like this. They're pushing their neck down and their bum is going to be up and they're going to try really hard to get out. Because what you're basically doing is you're forcing the dog into submission. And it's gonna. You're, and she was like, "You're gonna fight with them for a few minutes, but eventually, depends on how stubborn the dog is. Eventually, the dog will put its bum down and lie down and stop moving." And she's like, "You have to do that. Anytime the dog doesn't obey what you say, you have to go and you have to put him into submission." And I was like, oh, that kind of sounds cruel. Can't you just love them into submission? Can't you just do all this stuff? And I was like, you know, but it, he wasn't listening. Right? I was like, Teddy, come. He wouldn't come, right? Teddy, eat, go eat. I was like, Teddy, go pee. He just wouldn't listen, right? So I started doing it. And eventually, you know, it, it, it moved from, uh, my relationship with Teddy moved from me having to forcibly submit to if Teddy's barking, I'm like, Teddy, stop. And he'll look at me and he'll stop. 
right? Where, in fact, if he knows he's done something wrong and I march toward him, he actually gets down on all four and lies down, right? There's a big difference between forced submission and willing submission, right? Now, why, like, why is Teddy willingly submit? Like, is he, is he doing it out of fear? Maybe at the beginning he did it out of fear. But I hope that Teddy realizes that he, we're actually doing it out of love and that, hey, we're the ones that are feeding him. We buy him treats. We get him this. You know, we're, we're actually blessing him and providing. We're actually trying to create this life where Teddy is in peace with our family and with others and that he actually, you know, can enjoy his life. But we had to move from forced submission to willing submission. Now, I understand this example is not perfect, right? And I understand that you don't necessarily want to apply that to parenting, right? I mean, that's like, that's, you know, that's abuse, right? I mean, it's just like, it doesn't work. So I understand, you know, don't assume what I didn't say. Uh, but, but I wanted to use this example because there really is a difference between forced submission and willing submission. Right, here's another way of putting it, right? kind of putting that illustration on mind. There's a big difference between giving and taking. It's a big difference. Right? My child could see money in the drawer and have a, for a split second want to take it right? because she wants to get more allowance or she wants to buy a toy or she wants to do all this. Right? She could take it. Right? And what happens when she takes it? I mean, she's actually said, she opened the drawer one time and she said to us, Daddy, I just want to say I was really tempted uh, to, to take it. I, 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 there was this voice in my head that was like, go take it. And I was like, no, you know, that's not from the Lord. Like, she, you know, she's like, and I didn't do it. And I was like, thank you. You know, I was like, because it's, 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 you know, it's a struggle, right? It's a struggle. And, you know, if, if she took it, she would feel guilty. If, if she took it, Christina and I would be upset. But if she just did her chores, I mean, we willingly, we have money in that drawer because we want to give it to our kids, <laughs> right? There's a big difference between giving and taking, even when it relates to love and loving one another, right? There's a big relationship between giving and taking. There's a big di difference between serving and demanding. And what this passage is trying to illustrate here is if we use these verses as ammunition against each other, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're given this posture of forced submission. We're trying to forcibly submit the other person. When we use this as ammunition, we're trying to take. And we're saying, ultimately, this will be good for me. I don't know what it's going to do for you, but ultimately, it's going to be good for me because that's the posture when we take, right? Taking is all about me. Giving is about the other. But what happens when we serve and we give to one another? We actually experience the joy as well, right? They experience joy and we experience joy. So this, the, so I, I wanted to spend some time talking about a few of these examples because many times in the past, these have been used, these verses have been used as ammunition against the other person. And the broader context of this is, hey, before you try to point the speck, point out the speck in someone else's eye, you got to take the log out of your own. We're not perfect, and thank the Lord that we don't have to be. 
So if we take a look at this passage, right, and say, okay, what, do, what does this look like for me and to have this posture instead of, instead of taking but giving, what does this look like, right? Wives, you may not always want to submit to your husbands, especially when you know you're right, right? You may not want to always submit to them, but how do you think your husband would react if you chose to submit, I'm, I'm reminded, you guys remember um, in, in the New Testament, Jesus talks a lot about these different parables, and, and he actually talks about this instance where a Roman soldier would, would, uh, would kind of take the pack uh, off of their horse and put it on a Jew and force them to walk a mile. All right, so this is something that Jesus shared because it was custom. Romans, I mean, pretty much all Jews were slaves that Romans could call to their beckon at any moment. So you could be hanging out with your spouse, right? I mean, you guys just getting married, right? I mean, you guys could be like on your honeymoon and a Roman soldier could be like, John, you need to carry this for a mile. And you're like, but we're like on our honeymoon, right? And it's it's like, no, you got to go. And if you didn't go, you would be thrown in jail. So Romans could do this to anyone, right? He could do this, they could do this to anyone. Now, imagine if you're hanging out with your friends or you're about to go to the movies with your kids and you were forced to carry a pack for a mile. Like not, not drive a mile, like walk a mile and then you have to walk all the way back because the movie theater was there, right? Think about how much hate would be in your heart, how much frustration and how much anger would be in your heart and what do bullies do, right? Because that's what the Romans were doing. They're bullies. They feed off of your frustration, right? They feed off of your anger. So imagine how much joy they would have riding their horse, watching you carry the horse's pack for a mile. And you're grumbling and you're like kicking the ground and you're like dragging your feet and you're like, you accidentally drop the pack because you want it to get dirty and you're like, whoops, right? And then you're like, you, you kind of like, you accidentally drop stuff hoping that they don't notice and you put it back on and you accidentally like go like this and you hit the horse. Like, I mean, just, like just imagine what that would look like for that entire mile, how much hate you would have in your heart. And then at the end of the mile, you would take the pack off. The Roman soldier couldn't do anything, right? It was like, that was it because they were only legally allowed to ask you to go a mile. Now, what Jesus said is, hey, if they ask you to go a mile, go a second mile. This is what happens. If you, at the end of the mile, were carrying that pack and the Roman soldier was like, okay, the mile's done. And you were like, no, it's okay. I want to keep on carrying it for you. Where are you going? And you were to keep on carrying that beyond the mile. This is what would happen. The Roman soldier wouldn't be happy. They would actually begin to be afraid because they were not legally allowed to do that the Roman soldier would actually begin to get in trouble. So imagine what would happen that second mile if you were joyfully carrying it that first mile. And that second mile, you just, hey, where are we going, boss? Let's keep on going. And the, and the Roman soldier would, no, you give it back to me. I was like, no, 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 I want to do this. Yeah, I want to I help you. I want to bless you. Imagine the next mile, what would happen in both your postures. Right? Jesus is saying, and imagine if every Jew did that to every Roman soldier. Imagine the posture that the Roman soldiers and the perspective that they would have on the, the Jews. Do you see what happens in the perspective? We go from taking to giving. We go from forcibly submitting to willing submit, willingly submit. And when we willingly submit, see what happens around us. 
right? So wives, you may not always want to submit to your husbands, but if you are wrestling through some attitudes or, or some struggles with your husbands, and, and, and the last thing that you would want to do is go along with a plan or, or willingly say, imagine what would happen if you would do, if you, imagine what would happen if you willingly submit what would happen in their heart. Imagine what God could do in their heart. Now, husbands, what do you think would happen if you began loving your wives and stopped comparing them to your image of them or someone else? Right? Imagine what would happen if you saw your wife as she was, not as she was 20 years ago, not as she was or your image of her, but you saw her as she was today and you loved her. What do you think would do to, what do you think would happen to her posture toward you? And what happens to that? Children, what do you think would happen if you obeyed your parents even when they were asking you to do something that was inconvenient? Now, I remember as a kid, anytime my parents would ask me to do anything, I'd get frustrated, I'd get annoyed. Right? I mean, we, especially if they kept on asking me to do the same thing over and over again. I was like, no, I want to read a book. Why are you asking me to clean up my room? You know, I want to do this. And it was like, I mean, as children, we think that our parents' whole purpose of life, and especially as teenagers, is to uh, disrupt and ruin our lives, right? I mean, how many of you felt like that when you were a teenager? But if you as a, and this is why I wish the teens, uh, maybe we could like cut this clip out <laughs> and like, message it to them. Uh, but honestly, here's the thing. When you think about it, how many, like children, do you, do, you, do you really think that your parents' sole purpose in life is to make your life miserable? Like if you're a parent, you know that that's not your heart when you're asking them to do something or asking them to, to go somewhere or, or whatnot. That's not our sole purpose. And fathers, here's the thing. Fathers, uh, if, you th if you think, wives, if you think that, like, I spent, you know, this much time talking about you and, like, this much time talking about husbands, and, and you're like, you think I'm letting the husbands get off easy, that's not true because I'm talking about fathers again. And the reason I'm talking about fathers again is if you're a father and a husband, you're lucky because you get called out twice in this passage. Right? You get called out twice. Because you see here in verse 21... Fathers, do not exasperate your children. You know, verse 19, husbands, love your wives. So fathers, what do you think would happen? Here's a challenge. If you would say yes to your kids more than you say no. What would it look like if you, instead of just saying no, 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 because it was inconvenient or this or that, you actually began saying yes. What would it look like if you stopped treating your kids as mini slaves that do your bidding to make your life comfortable and you begin serving them and loving them so that they don't become exasperated and discouraged. Friends, we don't have to be perfect, but we do need to start somewhere. We do need to start somewhere, which brings us to the last verses uh, in Colossians 4 from 1 to 6. Right? Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains, so that I may make it known as I should. 
Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Right? Who are the outsiders in your life? Who are, when you think others and when you read a passage like this, right? Verse 5, act wisely toward outsiders. Who do you think of? Do you think of those in a different political party as you? Do you think of other ethnic groups? Do you think of those north of the Mason-Dixon line or south, right, compared to where you grew up? up? Do you think of other countries? Do you think of immigrants? Do you think of other religious groups? Like when you see and you read about outsiders, who are you thinking about? Now, it's fascinating that Paul writes here that verses 1 to 4 come before verse 5 and 6. Right? And I know it's like, well, yeah, 1 to 4 does come before 5 and 6, but I wonder if Paul was actually incredibly intentional in how he wrote this, knowing that he was going to talk about outsiders. In verse 1, he starts by reminding us that no matter how much we have, own, or do, we actually have a master in heaven. And then in verse 2, he urges us to devote ourselves to prayer. Right? And devoting ourselves to prayer is as much about talking to the Lord as it is about spending time with Him in and through meditating on the Word and reading through the Scriptures and just spending time with God like Mary did at the feet of Christ. And then in verse 3 and 4, He asks us to take an active posture to pray for others and to get outside of ourselves. And it's in that context, right, He says, verse 5 and 6, act wisely toward outsiders, right? Having said all of that, act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know you should answer each person, right? So in light of all that, in light of everything that we have talked about today, what does it look like to approach the outsiders in our lives in this manner? Right? Jesus isn't leading us to dismiss those who are unlike us. He is saying that outsiders are actually all around us, so we need to take an active posture rather than a passive one. So are you praying for the, are you praying, right? Are you praying for the outsiders in your life? When you see tragedies like what just happened this week in the newsroom, when you see tragedies like that, who do you pray for? Do you pray for just those who are affected? Or do you pray also for the murderer? Do you actually pray for the murderer's families? What if the murderer is someone and, and, and everything, I mean, you know, every shooting, every terrorist act, every, you know, the genocide, every genocide, everything that happens in our world, who do you pray for in those moments? Because I think that begins to reveal in our hearts who we identify with. Or who are you identifying with? Now, if we're to talk plainly, every time shootings happen, you know, I'm not going to talk about the, you know, who is the one that is often the shooter, what ethnic group or religious group. And I'm not here to talk about any of that. But I remember the Virginia Tech shooting so clearly. And the reason I remember the Virginia Tech shooting so clearly is because the shooter was Korean. And most often when you think of mass massacres or terrorists or anything, you don't often think of Koreans. 
You often don't really think of Asians doing much of that. Even though, I mean, unless you were around during World War II and, you know, Jap the, you know, Japanese and there's all that, right? But if you grew up in the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, you don't think of that. So, so when that massacre happened, I realized, I was like, hey, why am I also praying for him and for his family and for his community and for what, why was I naturally praying for him rather than forcibly causing or ask or, or trying to pray for other murders or right? Why do we do that? Who are the outsiders? It, it reveals who you view as unlike you as the outsiders, right? So when we look at this passage, Jesus is saying, whether you see someone as an outsider or not, we are called to approach all people in the same way with the love of Jesus Christ. Where both the insiders and the outsiders, we are praying for them, we are spending time with them, we are acting graciously toward them, that our speech and our actions are seasoned with grace. So as we end the message today, you know, I, I want to ask you this question. Are you asking the Lord, right, not only for him to change your heart, so that you can love and submit and grow and, and, and care for those in your blood family and in our church family. Right? But are you also asking that God would allow you to do the same to outsiders who you would never want to spend time with? Because being a follower of Christ, if, if, if all we had to do was love one another and love those who loved us, that'd be easy. But Jesus calls us as a different people to love the outsiders. So as we end off the message, we have this acronym here, and we're not going to spend much time on it, but we've talked about this multiple times as a church over the past few years. What would it look like if every day we began with prayer, right? We woke up and we said, Lord, here I am. And then in our conversations with others at work, at home, at the pool, at the mall, you know, wherever you're at, that you sought to listen more and listen to what was happening in their lives rather than just focusing in on speaking about yourself. And then you spent time eating with them, serving them. Do you not think natural opportunities would arise for you to share your story of what God is doing in your life and share the gospel with them?